it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. It's Thursday, August 11, 2022, and we begin with a Fox News alert right out of the gate. As the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, is speaking live at the Justice Department, a statement regarding the Trump raid at Mar-a-Lago. Let's listen live. To make public the warrant and receipt, in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. Faithful adherence to the rule of law is the bedrock principle of the Justice Department, and of our democracy. Upholding the rule of law means applying the law evenly, without fear or favor. Under my watch, that is precisely what the Justice Department is doing. All Americans are entitled to the even-handed application of the law, to due process of the law, and to the presumption of innocence. Much of our work is by necessity conducted out of the public eye. We do that to protect the constitutional rights of all Americans and to protect the integrity of our investigations. Federal law, long-standing department rules, and our ethical obligations prevent me from providing further details as to the basis of the search at this time. There are, however, certain points I want you to know. First, I personally approve the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Second, the department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. Third, let me address recent unfounded attacks on the professionalism of the FBI and Justice Department agents and prosecutors. I will not stand by silently when their integrity is unfairly attacked. The men and women of the FBI and the Justice Department are dedicated, patriotic public servants. Every day, they protect the American people from violent crime, terrorism, and other threats to their safety while safeguarding our civil rights. They do so at great personal sacrifice and risk to themselves. I am honored to work alongside them. This is all I can say right now. More information will be made available in the appropriate way and at the appropriate time. Thank you. Well, that was the Attorney General of the United States, Merrick Garland, giving a very brief statement. He has walked away. It looks like he is not taking any questions. He made clear. He just briefly stopped, turned around, and said, nope, we're not taking questions right now. This is all we can say at the moment. And he is now off the stage at the Justice Department. 
So just to reset here, you're listening to The Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. I'm your host, Guy Benson. And we cut immediately live to that because it was a highly anticipated but hastily arranged press conference at the Justice Department. Just a few hours ago, we got word that this was going to happen. It was supposed to happen around 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. They were delayed by more than half an hour. We were told in advance that the White House did not have prior knowledge that this was going to happen, that the statement was going to take place. We were also told that the Attorney General was going to speak for roughly five minutes. I'm not even sure if he got to five minutes, maybe thereabouts. He announced, Garland did, that the federal government, the Justice Department, is requesting the unsealing of the warrant in this Mar-a-Lago raid. A lot of people have been calling for that. He said that the fact that the target of the search, President Trump, has acknowledged it publicly, that factored into his decision. Right? It's already very much out there. He also said there was substantial public interest in the matter, which I think is absolutely uh, accurate perhaps an understatement. So at some point here, the motion has been filed by the DOJ to unseal the warrant. And that will be presumably up to a judge. And I would guess in the coming days, perhaps, we will get a look at the warrant itself. Team Trump had decided not to release it because they have a copy of it. And they've now acknowledged they have a copy of it. They have not released it to the public, although they also were considering pushing for something like this, where they also wanted the affidavit and the evidence behind the search warrant to be released. Attorney General Garland just now, moments ago, said that that will not be the case. That is not what the Justice Department is going to do, at least at the present time. He said they will be providing, for now, no further details on the basis of for the search warrant. And we have a number of guests coming up later in the show, including Kimberly Strassel this hour. We will talk about all of this and talk through all of it with her. I think the warrant itself, which will be unveiled, I would imagine, at some time in the coming days, if this is now the position of the Justice Department, unless a judge for some reason sees fit to deny the motion, we'll get a look at that warrant. It was going to come out at some point. And it will give us at least some clues and some context into what they were looking for, right? It will be better than nothing, because we've all been just discussing all this speculation, all this conjecture. That moment will allow us at least some information and furnish some information. But the background information, sort of the underlying evidence that was presented to get the search warrant in the first place, would be even more useful, I think, perhaps more revelatory. And Merrick Garland saying in that brief statement uh, just a few moments ago that that is not the intention of the Justice Department to put that information out into the public realm anytime soon. Right? That is not something that they are moving to do in the immediate future. He did say that he, the Attorney General, quote, personally approved seeking the search warrant in the first place. Now, that's interesting because there had been this Newsweek story that we read from yesterday on the show that had suggested that Garland had not greenlit the raid, that he wasn't even aware that the raid was happening. 
That still might be true, because these are two different things. He might have approved the search warrant, but not had his personal fingerprints on the decision-making process for the timing of its execution. But this would at least suggest to me that he was very much read in, in deep detail, into this whole situation that led up to the operation by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago on Monday with the pre-dawn raid. You're seeing all the footage on TV, the overhead shots with all the flashing lights, etc. That was very, very early Monday morning. So if you're reading between the lines, which is what we're all trying to do here together, it would seem that the Attorney General was briefed, was involved, was aware, and did give his personal blessing to the search warrant, the, the seeking of the search warrant, but not the execution of the search warrant. That's at least what he is saying. The Attorney General also defended the integrity and reputation of the men and women at the Justice Department and the FBI. Let me just say something about that for a moment. I think it is unfair to paint with a broad brush either of those organizations as, you know, completely corrupt or totally untrustworthy or what have you. I think there's a lot of people who are very upset right now. People are saying things and posting things that I think is, you know, spun up and overwrought. There are many people, proud patriotic Americans, who work at the DOJ and the FBI who just faithfully execute their duties to the best of their ability every single day, keeping all of us safe. And we salute those people, right? I, there's, I don't have some big vendetta against both of these organizations. I have friends who are FBI agents, and by no means am I interested in smearing all of these people. That being said, for reasons that we've discussed here on the show, When it comes to the politics and the political investigations of Hillary Clinton, for example, and the email scandal, Russiagate and Operation Crossfire Hurricane, the lack of real accountability for malfeasance and misconduct from top people at the FBI and DOJ during that whole mess, and now this, it is not unreasonable for people to be angry, for people to ask very pointed questions about accountability and justice and standards when it comes to this realm, you're not throwing the whole baby out with the bathwater. We're not saying that the DOJ and FBI is just, you know, filled with a bunch of partisan hatchet men who can't be trusted. But on this seemingly never-ending saga connected to Donald Trump, there are some completely legitimate reasons and richly deserved and earned reasons for skepticism at the very least and i think it's fine for garland to come out and defend his people and defend his institutions and say you know i'm not going to remain silent while people you know launch broadsides and attacks against these people that's all fine i'm willing to echo a lot of his you know uh endorsements of many many folks at both doj and fbi That does not mean that they are above reproach, that they are above questioning, and that there might be some political agendas at work, especially on sensitive cases just like this one. And it's not just, you know, out of nowhere that we're asking these questions or wondering some of this stuff. It's because we've all been awake 
not in a coma for the last five or six years. We've, we've witnessed it play out. So the real news, in my mind, coming out of that very brief press statement, no questions, relatively tight-lipped, the news was the Department of Justice is seeking the release of the warrant. They have filed a motion to unseal that warrant that was presented at Mar-a-Lago on Monday morning, and I would imagine the American people will get a chance to see that warrant relatively soon because of it. And the other piece of news is that Garland himself personally approved the seeking of the search warrant, even if he did not have personal knowledge of the execution of that search warrant, which took the form of a raid early Monday morning. I wish he had taken some questions. I think there was some at least some substance that he sidestepped there. I certainly have more questions myself. He also made clear what they're not going to do anytime soon, at least their their intention at this time, is not to release underlying evidence, affidavits, etc., that led to the warrant being granted in the first place. So we had gotten radio silence from the administration, from the Justice Department, from the FBI, no comments, active investigation. There has been... Such a conflagration of controversy that it seemed just unsustainable for them to do and say nothing as we all sit around speculating. And I think it's really hard, frankly, to form political analysis, cogent, strong analysis for all of you from my perspective based on these little tiny fragments of information that we have when we don't really know ultimately what the underlying substances like oh what does this mean for the midterms what does this mean for trump moving forward what does this mean for the reputation of the doj and fbi i don't know because i don't know what they do or do not have on trump and we still don't and frankly the warrant will at least be some new information i would welcome that information coming out as soon as possible but even when we have that in hand that will only be a very small i would imagine Maybe not, but a, a, an incomplete picture. Let's put it that way. So that is the news. Very short remarks there moments ago at the Justice Department in Washington, D.C., from the Attorney General, the leading law enforcement officer in the Biden administration, Merrick Garland. He spoke for approximately five minutes, took no questions. So that is how we began our show today. I will take a break. When we come back, I will kind of open the show, tell you where we are headed, give you a roadmap of guests and all of that sort of good stuff. And then coming up in just a few minutes, in in the next segment after that, Kimberly Strassel of the Wall Street Journal, columnist there, Fox News contributor. What a terrific get. What a fantastic guest to have, given that this just happened. We will have Kim Strassel joining us live on The Guy Benson Show moments from now. Stay tuned. We're just getting started on this Thursday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. 
We jumped right into the live statement from the Attorney General at the very top of the show. So let me just tell you that you are listening to The Guy Benson Show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. And you can follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. I'll be on special report tonight on the panel. No shortage of topics, obviously, given what has just happened here in the last few minutes. Here is the guest lineup today. As I mentioned in the previous segment, Kimberly Strassel joining us coming up in the very next segment. That's just minutes away. Governor Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, will be here in the next hour, as will Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, the latest out of Ukraine, Will Kane, our guest, in the final hour. That is all upcoming. Because we did not get the very beginning of Garland's statement, he started speaking literally seconds before we came on the air, I want you to hear, this is, I think, the nut of the news from the Attorney General's statement at the top of the hour or so, just a few minutes ago. Let's listen together to cut 15. Just now... The Justice Department has filed a motion in the Southern District of Florida to unseal a search warrant and property receipt relating to a court-approved search that the FBI conducted earlier this week. That search was of premises located in Florida belonging to the former president. The department did not make any public statements on the day of the search. The former president publicly confirmed the search that evening, as is his right. Copies of both the warrant and the FBI property receipt were provided on the day of the search to the former president's counsel, who was on site during the search. The search warrant was authorized by a federal court upon the required finding of probable cause. The property receipt is a document that federal law requires law enforcement agents to leave with the property owner. The department filed the motion to make public the warrant and receipt in light of the former president's public confirmation of the search, the surrounding circumstances, and the substantial public interest in this matter. So most of that that we just played for you there in that soundbite was cut off. It was said right before we came on the air, but we laid out basically those facts for you, and that's the news. The other news is that the attorney general personally approved The seeking of the search warrant, still unclear exactly the timing of the execution of that search warrant, if he knew about that or not, and then what were they looking for and why? Those are the big question marks that we still don't have and don't have answered, and we still may not have them answered even after we see this warrant, should it get unsealed, as the DOJ has now requested in that motion. Kimberly Strassel will be here next to discuss and react. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. The Guy Benson Show. First, I personally approve the decision to seek a search warrant in this matter. Second, the department does not take such a decision lightly. Where possible, it is standard practice to seek less intrusive means 
as an alternative to a search and to narrowly scope any search that is undertaken. Third, let me address recent unfounded attacks on the professionalism of the FBI and Justice Department agents and prosecutors. I will not stand by silently when their integrity is unfairly attacked. It's the Guy Benson Show. We are back. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is always free. And that was the voice of Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking just after the top of the hour, a press conference announced earlier today addressing this raid at Mar-a-Lago, the first statement from the Justice Department. And the news that he made, you heard some of it there, but the number one thing that he came out of the gates with was that the DOJ has requested the unsealing and release of the warrant in this search. And so what does this all mean? Does this really bring us any new information? You'd imagine the warrant would. And what about this statement that we heard from the Attorney General elsewhere in his comments, which lasted just over three minutes, that none of the underlying information that informed the seeking of the search warrant, that will not be released. That will remain private under wraps, at least for the foreseeable future. Here with me to discuss and analyze all of it is Kimberly Strassel, Potomac Watch columnist at the Wall Street Journal, also a Fox News contributor. You can check out her book, Resistance at All Costs. Kim, it's great to have you back. Hi, Guy. It's great to be here. All right. So uh, we've heard now from the AG. We heard nothing at all. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it was untenable. Finally, we get something today. Not really a ton of news there, but what do you think of it? Yeah, not a ton. First of all, one thing that was important um, is that he did say that he had authorized this search warrant. That does put to rest some media claims out there claiming that he didn't know about this, which was a shocking idea to me. So he at least did that. Um, on the, the warrant and the unsealing, in my mind, Guy, that does maybe help confirm a little bit uh, the, the reigning media narrative out there that this is about documents, uh, given that he talked not just about the search warrant, but also about a property for receipt, uh, which suggests these were things that were being taken away and seized, obviously, from Mar-a-Lago. Um, which raises to me some really important questions on a much bigger level, which is, you know, I, I understand the point about the law is the law, but the Department of Justice has longstanding guidelines about not going into politically sensitive areas without really good reason. And you got to wonder if going after documents counts. I mean, I think that's very much a fair question. But again, here we are left, Kimberly, talking about stuff that is still kind of hidden from public view. We might get some of it if this warrant comes out uh, maybe sometime soon, maybe in the next couple days. But to me, it's sort of the purpose of the warrant. Why was the warrant sought in the first place based on what? That will remain out of public view for a significant period of time, it sounds like, based on what we heard there from the Attorney General. And look, when this news broke that the Mar-a-Lago raid had happened, uh, I was trying to make heads or tails of it. What does it actually mean? What was the purpose of it? It seemed to coincide with a lot of increasing chatter around the January 6th investigation, 
And you know, our mutual friend, a very smart guy who comes on the show all the time, Andy McCarthy, longtime federal prosecutor, he said, and so did former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, I had both of them on this show on Monday, they both seem to believe that this search must have been related somehow to January 6th and not just some dispute over presidential records and documents and classified material because at least I don't want to speak for either of them, but implicit in that message was this can't really just be about that, can it? And based on their time as federal prosecutors, Chris Christie was a U.S. attorney, it seems like at least the message I gleaned, speaking just for myself, from their point, their points, was that this would have to be a smaller piece of a larger puzzle, and that may or may not be the case, Kim, because you know it's, it's entirely plausible or possible that Justice Department is trying to build some much larger case on much more serious matters, not to say that classified material and mishandling is, is not a serious matter, matter, but in the scheme of things, we have seen prosecutorial discretion, for example, with Hillary Clinton not charging her with, I think, clear-cut crimes on this front. If this comes down to Trump a former president taking material out of the White House and stowing it away at Mar-a-Lago, if that's what this ultimately comes down to, and it's just sort of within that realm, within that silo of presidential records and and classified material, uh, to me, that would be a major factor in, you know, all of us out here in the media determining whether this was overreach. Because if there's something much bigger at play, then I'm open to saying perhaps they had no choice and this was justified. I don't know. But if it's just materials taken from the White House down to Mar-a-Lago, that would at least to me seem a lot more in the sort of gray realm of dodginess about whether such heavy-handed tactics were remotely justified against a former president. Right, and especially in an election year. I think it would actually just be wild, Guy. I mean, the, the notion, again, these guidelines that are there, and uh, you, we heard from Eric Garland, you're hearing it a lot in the press, no one's above the law, uh, equal justice under the law. I get all that, except for the guidelines are there to – it's an implicit recognition that you can't take politics out of any kind of political investigation. And so it requires a sort of weighing, like how big of a crime does it have to be to risk undermining the Department's of justice's reputation and positioning it as some sort of uh, politicized or corrupt entity. In the case of a fire former president, that bar needs to be very high. It has yes. always been very high. In the entire history of the attorney general's office, which is more than 230 years old. Um, so, yes, if this is about document retrieval, uh, that, that's crazy that he would take that risk. Now, of course, Andy McCarthy and others, as you've suggested, have claimed that what we might find in this warrant is a, a stated purpose of some sort of document retrieval when, in fact, it's a fishing expedition for material that might get them something that they want in ja- their January 6th probe, etc. Um, and, you know, even the opening of that uh, warrant might not tell us that either um, unless it explicitly says that it's related to January 6th. Um, it, we, we won't necessarily know. It could just claim documents. And we don't know what kind of documents they were actually looking for. Right. And so that's why, and I sort of made this observation 
uh, earlier in the show, and I might repeat it because you and I are together on the special report panel this evening. So a little preview uh, of that panel here in just longer form on the radio. It is really (laughs) hard, I think, and you can agree or disagree, it's really hard for me, at least, to offer sound analysis of this situation because there's just so much that we don't know. And to try to extrapolate how this will play months from now, let alone a few years from now in elections, I think it really depends on what do they actually have on this guy, if anything. If it's just documents, that is a very different story than if it's something much bigger. And we're just sort of staring into a black box here. We have no idea what is actually really happening. So it's it's hard to kind of draw any strong conclusions and Kim, that might not even change that dramatically, what I just said, even when we see this warrant. Yeah, I think the way to look at what Garland announced today is the minimal possible public uh, explanation of what happened here. Okay, so they're going to put out that warrant. All right, fine. Maybe it'll tell us something. But there's a lot of things that we're still probably not going to get even with that warrant guy, meaning, for instance, what was the pretext of this raid? If you listen to people, lawyers on Trump's team, uh, they claim there was a subpoena. Uh, the Department of Justice was invited into Mar-a-Lago. Kane was allowed to look around. Uh, you know, had information about what they wanted to do with. And they took some stuff, lock, right? And took some stuff. And then, according to Trump team, it was radio silence right up until this particular raid. Um, what we really need to know is, is that the real case of the thing? So you need the Department of Justice to put forward its uh, uh, information about what happened in the intervening time. It's highly unlikely they're going to do that. And while I do understand Department of Justice protocol where they don't discuss ongoing investigations, this is a really big deal. Um, uh, and And I think one of the problems is that it it isn't an election year. It hangs a lot of innuendo, by the way, not just over Trump, but the Republican Party and those who are supporting him in this particular thing. And, and that is a, a big monkey wrench thrown into politics in the ex- upcoming midterms. Well, and it's also not happening, and this is the next direction I want to take this, Kim. It's also not happening in a vacuum, right? It's not like we have had no weirdness surrounding Trump and the Justice Department and the FBI for the last six years, and then out of nowhere this thing dropped out of the sky, out of nowhere. Part of the reason that I think the reaction has been as volcanic as it has been in a lot of quarters on the right is because of all of the context building up to this moment, building up to this week, including the whole Russia thing that you and I have talked about many times. So I just wanted to get your reaction when we were coming back from the break in this segment I played some of the Garland statement, and he you know, went to bat for his people at DOJ and FBI saying, you know, I, I won't stand here and just allow people to impugn their, you know, their integrity and what have you. And, and I said, look, I'm not interested in impugning the entire FBI and the DOJ and saying that they're all you know, scumbags and they should be defunded and you know, disbanded. That, I'm, not, I'm not going there. But there are, I think, completely fair questions to ask about politicized investigations with those entities involving this man, Donald Trump, based not on just, you know, knee-jerk partisanship, based on what they have done in recent years that we've covered, and you have perhaps more than anyone covered. Your reaction to that from what we heard uh, out of the Attorney General? 
Yeah, my jaw dropped. That was actually, to me, one of the more offensive parts of that statement. Just because, I mean, what, has everyone just put the past five years down the memory hole? And when you talk about what they have done, by the way, let's note that these are things that have been exposed by a special counsel in John Durham, by the inspector general uh, for the FBI and the Department of Justice, Michael Horowitz, report after report. I mean, when you are going to go to the bat for the integrity of the FBI, Jim Comey's FBI, really? Um, it's Andrew kind McCabe? Of astonishing. Andrew McCabe's FBI or, you know, the fellows who were in the Department of Justice who signed off on those FISA warrants? Uh, against Carter Page, even though they had no real evidence, and even after they knew that a lot of the dossier had fallen apart, I mean, this is this is really amazing stuff. And again, well, I, and I Kim, would never Kim, just throw to jump in under the bus either. But that's, yeah, just, you know. I just want to jump in real quick on that point because, and and it just sparked a thought. We've heard from a lot of people who are giddy about this raid or defending the raid. And again, I'm keeping my powder dry because I just don't know. But we've heard from that crowd. Look. This involved the Attorney General of the United States, the head of the FBI. They would not have done something like this without crossing all their T's and dotting all of their I's for very significant probable cause. This is highly, highly sensitive stuff. They wouldn't have done this over something minor or marginal. And, you know, it's almost this circular argument where it's like, well, because it's so sensitive, that is the evidence that they couldn't have done this lightly, right. you know, lightly or improperly. And on some level, the logic makes sense, of course. But then there's what you just mentioned, where you had, you know, Carter Page, a, you know, a, a Trump associate, a Trump campaign associate being spied on and, you know, wiretapped. That was signed off by a FISA court based on this absolutely, totally dodgy and partially, at the time, disproven dossier paid for by the political opposition, you know, they kind of made these arguments back then during Crossfire Hurricane, saying, well, surely there's something here because all of this stuff wouldn't be based on nothing or something, you know, frivolous or, or not that rock solid. Well, that's exactly what did happen in those circumstances. It's not crazy town. For people like you and me, Kim, to say, well, are we confident this time is different? And if so, why? Yeah, they didn't kind of just say that, Guy. They did say that. Yeah, <laughs> they employed yeah. the exact same circular reasoning saying, well, you know, our Justice Department is so serious and so grown up that if they are doing this, then obviously there's so much there there. Um, you know, just one more thing I want to point out, because as you said, it sort of sparked in me a little bit, is you were talking about the kind of glee with which all of this has been uh, you know, accepted and, and taken on by the media, etc. I mean, it, it is astonishing to me how blindly they are going all in to defend this. You know, saying this has to be carefully reasoned, and obviously no one is above the law and everything. Um, it, it, payback? I mean, this is this is so dangerous to the republic in that let's just say Donald Trump now runs again, okay? Let's say he gets reelected. If we really just set the bar this low, presuming it is, let's say it is low, okay? Let's say it's about documents. Uh, does anyone think that Donald Trump, especially if he didn't have the same uh, uh, very uh, grown-up advisors around him of the level that he did last time, and there's a good chance he won't, that his Department of Justice would be more than happy to go uh, investigate Joe Biden? Yeah, or or any other, you know, fill in the blank, you know, enemies list stuff. Anyone, uh, anyone, yeah, it's... you know, 
And, and, and now where will we be left after having heard from the last week a nonstop drumbeat from everyone in the Beltway press corps that it doesn't – politics plays no role, and all that matters is that no one is above the law. Yeah, and if you plead the fifth – uh, you know, you must be guilty, which is something that guilty. Trump has said in the past. <laughs> and now he's the one pleading the fifth. He's like, oh, now I understand that, you know, there are double standards at play here. It's just interesting who seems to get away with it more, uh, certainly in the eyes of the supposedly nonpartisan, you know, uh, referees in the media. Still so much that we don't know, but uh, some news here today at the top of the hour, the attorney general saying that warrant, they've requested for it to be released. That would give us at least a little bit more to talk about with some concrete information as opposed to all the conjecture that we are stuck with, given the nature of how this is all playing out. Kim Strassel, our guest, columnist at The Wall Street Journal, Fox News contributor. Kim, always appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yep. See you in a couple hours. Yes, yeah, see on special report tonight. And with that, we'll step aside briefly. President Trump responding to all of this. We'll get to that next. Energetic, informed, fast-paced. Guy Benson Show. As we continue on the Guy Benson Show, President Trump reacting to all of this today. He said earlier... What happened to the 30 million pages of documents taken from the White House to Chicago by Barack Hussein Obama? He refused to give them back. What is going on? This act was strongly at odds with NARA, N-A-R-A, the National Archives and Records Administration. Will they be breaking into Obama's quote-unquote mansion in Martha's Vineyard? That was earlier today, and then minutes ago, after Garland, he said, I continue to ask, what happened to the 33 million pages of documents taken to Chicago by President Obama. The fake news media refuses to talk about that. They want it canceled, exclamation point. I think there's probably a better comparison here with Hillary Clinton, who was not charged for her, I think, obvious crimes on classified material, if that's this is what, it, what it's all about, which we don't know yet. We'll get to Governor Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, his reaction coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour here on the Guy Benson Show, the 4 p.m. Eastern hour between 3 and 6. That's the show every day. You can listen live, which we always recommend. You can also catch our podcast after the show for free on demand. No charge at all. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show. And catch me tonight on Special Report on Fox News Channel right around 6.45 p.m. Eastern Time. That's FNC, Brett Baer, and company. Fox News alert as we begin the middle hour. The Dow closes up just slightly, 27 points in the green, ending the day at 33,337. With us now is Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin and president of Young America's Foundation. And, Governor, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me on. Great to be with you, Guy. Oh, I wanted to talk to you about the primary election results in Wisconsin from Tuesday night, and hopefully we'll get to that a little bit later on. But first, just your reaction to the attorney general's statement last hour about this Mar-a-Lago raid uh, and, and part of what I wanted to ask you about was we, we don't know the details. We don't know the basis. We don't know if this is justified or not. 
but I couldn't help but at least think back to the so-called John Doe raids in your state where, you know, the elements of law enforcement were absolutely politicized in a really scandalous way. I'm not alleging that's what's happening here, but there could be something of an echo with your experience that, that you lived through in Wisconsin. Maybe just comment on that if you would. Yeah, guy, you got a great memory, and as uh, Yogi Berra would say, it was uh, it felt like deja vu all over again. That's <laughs> right. exactly what happened. We had a, a bunch of uh, rogue government bureaucrats and uh, prosecutors in the Democrat-led Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office who went out on a wild a goose chase, which ended up being a witch hunt, not once but twice in John Doe, which are kind of like grand jury uh, investigations, but they don't even allow any uh, sort of uh, discussions by anybody under the spotlight there and and they did middle of the night raids against supporters of mine they went after my documents in the end they were all shut down by a federal judge as well as the state supreme court but we saw exactly what appears at least on the surface uh, to be the case with what we saw at mar-a-lago the other night and it's outrageous if it can happen to me if it can happen to the president of the united states it can happen to anyone and no no government agency like this should ever be weaponized against political opponents yeah, and look, there could be, I keep waiting, you know, for actual information that would convince me that perhaps a raid like this was justified. I think that would be a very high bar. They would have to clear it in my mind, and I think in the minds of many Americans. So far, we don't really know very much, partially because that's how protocol is, ongoing investigation, etc. But I think people are understandably suspicious of the DOJ and the FBI given what we all saw during, you know, Russia Gate, where it was, you know, similar feeling at least of like, oh, something really bad must be percolating here. They wouldn't be doing all of this if Trump, you know, hadn't colluded with Russia. And then of course we found out finally, years later, that there was no Russia collusion from the Trump campaign. I'm not saying we're gonna see a, a repeat of that here or that, you know, the the John Doe example in Wisconsin is an apt comparison, but it also could be and right now we're all sort of just guessing together right well and you're exactly right to have that kind of approach to let's wait and see what's going on here i got into a debate with uh, Kristen welker the other day on nbc news on meet the press now and, I and saw that. Uh, she kept interrupting saying hey you know you have no evidence of that and i said no there's a pattern you talk about it with the so-called Russian collusion, which, if anything, was collusion with the, the theory, as we now know, do have evidence that it originated with Hillary Clinton's campaign. And then you look back years earlier under President Obama's administration, for years, people had raised concerns about the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS, because all that couldn't be possible. But then we found, again, evidence that under Obama's administration, they actually were targeting conservatives in the IRS. That's so right. When there's a pattern out there, again, we don't have specific evidence one way or the other to prove what happened at Mar-a-Lago this week. But when there's a pattern that we see of left-wingers of this deep state, of this embedded swamp mentality that's unfortunately sweeping to some of these agencies, it's no wonder that uh, many of us as Americans are second-guessing what's happening. Yeah. Or at least asking questions, and you know, they like they're they're past the point I think where their indignation is sufficient, right? Because if if you didn't have the pattern that you talked about, then I think some of the stuff that we are talking about here could seem a little conspiratorial. But the pattern does exist, and therefore the questions exist, and I think that it sort of flows; it makes sense. 
Governor Walker, I want to ask you about what happened on Tuesday in Wisconsin. Uh, the primary election, obviously some, some big races at the governor level, at the Senate level in that state, really important races coming up in November. Your lieutenant governor was at least early on seeming to be a front runner for the Republican nomination. She ended up falling to the Trump-backed uh, candidate who is who's now the nominee taking on Governor Evers. You've also got the Senate race with Senator Johnson and the Democrats have nominated a pretty left-wing guy uh, out there, out there sort of on, on the fringe. If you could just break down your takeaways from the Wisconsin election, the primary election on Tuesday. Yeah, two parts. And the Senate, this Senate seat in Wisconsin uh, is probably going to be the key to whether we get uh, the Senate majority back in that we've got to hold Wisconsin, we've got to hold Pennsylvania, and then uh, we, we've got good shots in places like Georgia and Arizona and maybe a handful of others. But it doesn't work if we, we lose a lot of the seats we currently have. So holding the seat for Ron Johnson is imperative. Mandela Barnes, the, the current lieutenant governor, remember, Governor Evers and Lieutenant Governor Barnes presided over a state where they shut down everything. They shut down the economy. They shut down small businesses. They shut down um, schools at the detriment of so many students across the state. And at the same time, they did little to nothing to fight some of the real violence we saw in communities like Kenosha, where there was the burning down of, of actual buildings and riots and even a few deaths. So there's a huge liability out there. Um, having said that, Mandela Barnes cleared the field. He's going to have a ton of money fueled by the anti-Trump sentiment from the East and the West Coast elites. And this isn't going to be an easy race. I mean, this guy's a radical. When he was running for lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes was exposed for not having paid his property taxes, even had his license suspended for not paying outstanding tickets. Those are all things that show just how personally out of control he is. Uh, but we're going to have to not only point those things out, but point out radical ideas like getting rid of ice. You know, at the time when fentanyl's flowing all throughout the country into Wisconsin and beyond, he wants to get rid of the agency that uh, that guards our borders. So really critical. And, of course, in the governor's race, Tim Michaels now is the nominee. But we've got to defeat Tony Evers. This guy perfected the basement strategy two years before Joe Biden. Uh, he's not up to the job like Joe Biden isn't up to the job. And uh, not only is it key to what happens in Wisconsin, uh, in many ways, you know, when I was governor, uh, we won for the first time since 1984. The Republican nominee carried the state. And four years later, we did uh, when there was a Democrat governor. So this may very well determine not only the Senate, uh, but whether or not we've got the apparatus to get a president elected uh, two years from now. Uh, Just very briefly, Governor, I did look at the turnout on each side and the republican turnout was really really strong in wisconsin on tuesday democratic turnout not so robust is that significant in your mind yes i think it is in the reflection obviously we had uh, two great uh candidates for governor and the field was a little bit clearer on the senate democrat side but sure. having said that i think it's one it's a reminder that for all the hype about photo id that i send to the law the, the numbers continue to grow when it's easy to vote but hard to cheat but the other part is enthusiasm, and I think that was even uh, picked up even a little bit after Monday's raid uh, when folks right of center, whether they love Trump or not. Uh, yeah. No, there, the there's there's a lot of uh, people getting fired up over it. There's no doubt about that. Governor Scott Walker, former governor of Wisconsin, he leads the Young America's Foundation, a great organization. Governor, always enjoy chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Meanwhile, President Trump putting out another statement in response to the attorney general, quote, my attorneys and representatives were cooperating fully and had very good relationships established 
The government could have had whatever they wanted if we had it. They asked us to put an additional lock on a certain area. Done. Everything was fine. Better than most previous presidents. And then he talks about this raid. And he says it's, quote, crazy, exclamation point. A story that we will follow today and into tomorrow as well. On The Guy Benson Show, we will be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. Thanks so much for being here. We gave you an update yesterday on monkeypox, and here's another one. One of the updates yesterday was that the Biden administration, their new plan from the HHS department, led by someone totally unqualified to be there, is that they're taking the shortage of monkeypox vaccines, and they're trying to make it seem like less of a shortage by reducing the dosage for each shot by 80%. They're cutting the doses up into fifths. And there was a Washington Post story about how this was very controversial. The administration insists that it's going to be completely safe and the efficacy will be unchanged because they're going to deliver it a different way. There were other people quoted expressing a great deal of skepticism about that. They have reservations about it. Obviously, you're supposed to get two of these shots four weeks apart. They're like, actually, let's just cut them into fifths, and you can get ultimately two-fifths. It'll be just fine. Well, the vaccine maker, the company that makes this vaccine, per the Washington Post, is now sounding the alarm, expressing concerns about the dose-splitting plan. And you don't say. What they have is clinical trials and data based on the dosage that's recommended and the way that it is administered. What the U.S. government is doing out of necessity, born of their own incompetence, and we've talked about all of the failures leading up to this point, what we're talking about is a huge mass-scale experiment on the American people, specifically on gay and bisexual men, just like, well, we hope this works out. And even the vaccine makers saying, well, we're not so sure about this which makes perfect sense. We talked about gaslighting a lot on this show recently. We'll talk about it more a little bit later on the show. This feels like another example of gaslighting, where they're telling us, don't worry, reducing the doses by 80% will have absolutely no effect on the effectiveness. It'll be just fine. Everything will work out great. And forgive me for being instantly skeptical of that, and even more curious about how they can possibly say that to us with a straight face when you have the vaccine manufacturer itself saying, hold your horses. There was a story in Politico, meanwhile, we talked about all the delays, delays caused by the Biden administration and just total ineptitude. There was concern that because they had left a bunch of doses just sitting in a warehouse uninspected at a plant, And even though the EU inspector said it's perfectly safe, it wasn't good enough for the FDA, so that was a million doses. They gave away 215,000 doses, thinking we wouldn't need them, gave them to European countries. Then once they realized, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble here, they were very belated in putting in a request to bottle the vaccine so it could be sent to the United States and injected into arms. And by the time they were finally getting around to requesting the bottling, very late in the process, We were way behind the curve. And 
deep in the line. Other countries were in front of us with requests and with contracts and that sort of thing. And so the speculation was it could take months for that bottling to occur. The Politico story, because we had heard about like October, November, the Politico story today says the bottling of the monkeypox vaccine might take until early next year, 2023, while the outbreak is proliferating right now. So the scrambling, as is so often the case with this administration, isn't working. And at a moment of acute need, they're failing. They've face-planted. And in this case, it's the gay and bisexual community that's in the crosshairs. Although, don't tell that to NPR. NPR did this unbelievable interview, a local interview, or a regional NPR, with a public health expert. And Josh Barrow wrote about this. Ross Douthat at the New York Times highlighted it. And you almost have to read it to believe it. But there was a question asked of a public health expert about monkeypox. And the response was an absolute jumble of woke jargon that the average person would need to read and reread multiple times to even maybe have a guess of what they're saying. Here's what the public health official said about monkeypox. Ready for this? Quote, It's quite the challenge. What we've been trying to do as best we can is stick with what we know. So far, so good. In the United States, we know that people assigned male at birth who have sex with men and people assigned female at birth, including at least one pregnant person, have been affected by monkeypox in Oregon. We know that cisgender men and non-binary people are affected by monkeypox, while most identify as gay or queer and report close contact with people assigned male at birth. We have cases that also identify as straight and bisexual and report close contact with people assigned female at birth. You got all that? I mean, for crying out loud. You need a woke abacus and like three graduate degrees in gender studies from Swarthmore to have any idea what the hell they're talking about here. On COVID and also on monkeypox, I've made the point over and over again that the job of public health officials needs to be clear and concise communication of accurate information, getting that out to the American public and putting political considerations and woke considerations and political correctness and whatever the lexicon of the enlightened might be that only can be translated by a small sliver of society Put all of that aside and just give us the truth clearly and directly. And this is exactly the opposite of that. Josh Barrow, who's sort of a moderate writer, he describes this as an example of how not to talk to the public about monkeypox. And I would have to agree. That almost feel like that almost feels like straight out of the Babylon Bee. But it is real. It is absolutely real. So I guess if you're an NPR listener who's steeped in some of this stuff, you can make heads or tails out of that answer. I think the average person sits there, and they have no idea what it means, and it actually obscures the truth and the reality about this disease, who is at risk, and why. Our public health bureaucracy continues to do a grave disservice to the public, and the Biden HHS 
has made it even worse with their multiple stumbles logistically with this crisis. And this should be a much bigger scandal than it is. And as I've said repeatedly, for reasons that I think are indisputable, it would be a much greater scandal if it were a Republican presiding over this, given who's affected, no matter how much they try to talk around it with these ridiculous words and buzz phrases that are extremely confusing to so many people. So there's your monkeypox update. Hope you're feeling better about everything. (laughs) We'll take a break. When we come back, General Keith Kellogg will be here on the latest out of Ukraine. Some pretty big developments over there that we haven't talked about in a while. We'll get an update there, plus analysis of Taiwan. That's straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. It's The Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com, and the podcast is free every day. Joining us now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired, a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council under President Trump. His latest book is War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. And, General, it's always good to have you here. Hey, Guy, and thanks for having me. Good to be with you. You bet. So I want to start with Ukraine. There's this interesting situation that played out in Crimea where the Russians lost at least eight warplanes. I saw some helicopters may have been taken out as well in what looks like an attack. Kiev is sort of tight-lipped about what happened. The Russians have been denying that anything happened, but it seems based on the satellite imagery that they're lying. What went on here, and what do you think the significance is? Yeah, it's a great question because when you're looking at it, and I've seen the same videos you've seen on the attack and the overhead imagery from the airfield, they clearly have taken out some aircraft. And I saw the uh, the visuals from uh, uh, that have been across on the public wire of the hits going in. Here's the interesting part of this one. Okay, they those hits were basically further than the range of the normal missiles that come out of the HIMARS system. I'm just uh, there could be speculation that we've actually given attackums missiles which kind of doubles the range and that's the advanced tactical missile system that we have not wanted to give to the Ukrainians because of the fear of of shooting deep into uh into Russia. And I'm I'm getting to wonder well, maybe we gave them some attackums that they're able to do this because they're very targeted meaning very precision guided weapon system to hit those. So the reason why why everybody could be tight-lipped about it is the type of weaponry that was used. It, it, it so when you think about it okay how did they the, the missiles that they used to get there it's clear they were using weapons or missile systems that they haven't been using recently. So uh, the significance of that is if it's true and they were able to use attackums missiles, it means now that we've given them the ability to strike much deeper into Russia and that they're going after major targets, much like the airfield in Crimea that they couldn't get to before. Right. And usually Kiev is more than happy to crow about their successes against the Russian military. That would explain why they might not be quite as open about it this time, because they want to at least, you know, strategically be ambiguous and keep the Russians guessing about what hit them, you know. And so I think that's obviously an exciting development as someone who's fully rooting for Ukraine in all of this. I did see, General, and I'm sure you saw it as well, the Pentagon has put out an estimate that as many as, and this is up to this point, as many as 80,000 Russian troops 
have been killed or wounded in Ukraine. 80,000. That is really an astonishing number. Put that in perspective a little bit. Yeah, the reason why that's such an amazing number is when you normally when you average that because when they didn't give killed or wounded in action, they just gave a general number of seventy to eighty thousand. Generally, you figure wounded to to killed it runs about three to one. Probably in this conflict, it's two to one. And the reason I say two to one is the ability to to evacuate and field hospitals, which is very good in the U.S. military, isn't found both in Ukraine or found in the Russian military system. You look, they leave their dead on the battlefield, which is, the Americans would never do. And they leave soldiers behind, which we would never do. And so you're saying, okay, that means they're probably, potentially they've lost 25,000 uh, soldiers killed. That is an astonishing number. That is double the amount of soldiers that they lost in all of the time they fought in Afghanistan. And these are frontline units. These weren't, you know, a rear echelon type of units. These were their um, their VDB, which is their airborne and special ops units. These were their tank guards units. They're all high-end units. So if they've taken that many casualties, this means their ability to operate is is really been lessened, and they're relying on basically reserve type of units, and they're already doing that with their equipment. So, it, so it's a, it's 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 a stunning number. What that also means for NATO is there's no way they're going to attack NATO. I mean, there's no way they don't have the troops to do it. This will take years for them to recover from if they've lost that many troops. And the other part of that is what hasn't been said on that announcement was the senior officers. We are pretty sure they've lost a significant number of what we call regimental commanders. Those are colonels and lieutenant colonels and general officers well, even as well. generals, right? They've, they've yeah, picked they, off some generals. Yeah, and if they've lost in, in 180 days, thereabouts, in the war, if they've lost what the reports are, 12 generals, think of it this way, in all of Vietnam, we lost five. In all of that, ten, in 20 years in, in the wars we fought in Afghanistan, uh, we lost one. I mean, in losing that many, and these are field commanders that are, they're frontline commanders. So when you add in the commanders that are being killed, the amount of troops that they've lost and wounded in action, um, and and then the equipment they've lost, it's a stunning setback for the Russians. Now, the good part on that for the Russians is that news hasn't gotten to the Russian public. It's It will sooner or later. We're getting indications that they've been able to cover it pretty well, and uh, with uh, you know, by keeping it, the news from the public. But, uh, again, they can't hide it in their command and control. So uh, you're looking at a military that is really very, very weakened. It's something that NATO should say, well, we shouldn't worry about them coming across the border, and we shouldn't. Uh, and it's going to take them a long time to recover from. I mean, I, you kind of get the indicator, too, Guy, when – uh, when Putin has relieved a lot of generals, you're seeing – I've gotten reports he's relieved five to seven generals, very senior ones, and re, uh, reorganized his his, uh, his army-level leadership. That means things are not going well for him. Yeah, if he's reassigning a bunch of them and others have been killed. I did see that Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is talking tough about Crimea, basically saying we want to liberate Crimea, get back – that sovereign territory that the Russians stole during the Obama administration, that seems like someone who is at least feeling a little bit optimistic at the moment. It's been kind of this seesaw back and forth. The Russians invaded initially back in the winter, and a lot of people were like, wow, this could be a route pretty quickly. That obviously did not turn out to be the case. The Ukrainians were remarkably effective at repelling the Russians and keeping them out of Kiev. Uh, and even gaining back some of the territory that they lost. It seemed like the Ukrainians had the upper hand for quite a while. Then the Russians were at least 
fighting them to a draw in the east and maybe had some momentum or at least had stifled and stopped some of the momentum of the Ukrainians. Now, with these most recent reports, it seems like perhaps Ukraine is on the rise again here. Do you have a sense of where things stand? Who has the upper hand? Are the Ukrainians back on top here, or is it just sort of going to be like this long war of attrition? Well, there's two parts to it, Guy. One, it is an attrition fight, because you see these artillery rounds going back and forth on each side. Um, But here's – and I actually said this probably – uh, almost 60 days ago on a, on a Fox program with John Roberts, I said, look, keep looking to the south near Kherson and keep watching those incursions by the Ukrainians as they continue to attack from west to east near Kherson um, towards Crimea. And that's what everybody's now looking at because there's a counterattack going there that is going very well for the Ukrainians. And if they can get to Kherson, then they, because if they move, keep moving um, to the east, they can actually cut that corridor to Crimea, and I think that's where. Um, and I think they're starting to the Russians. They're starting to reposition forces because they now realize that is a dangerous area. And I think the Ukrainians are very smart. They knew they couldn't basically win in the Donbass area uh, because of the amount of the preponderance of, of Russian forces there, which were a lot, but they could win in the south. And I think that's what they tried to do. And I think you're starting to see that with the attack into Crimea, the fact that you've seen strong counterattacks uh, near Kyrgyzstan and Mikhailov in that area. And I think this is something to watch. And if they do that, it's almost like it's a trade-off. Um, and I think uh, the Russians are very concerned about it. And that's the reason I think you're seeing a lot of the, the Ukrainians being very closed-mouthed about what's going on. And I look at that for the indicators, that the artillery strikes that you see, the, the, where they're positioning their forces. And it's clearly the fight is going to be in the south. And this has got to unnerve Putin. Now, I would say on the side of the Russians, you know, size does matter and pure strength does matter. And they've still got a lot of reserves to throw. But their, their regular army has been badly beaten and bloodied, and now they have to reserve, go to the reserve forces to do it. Um, it's, still, it's still a long slugfest, and I don't think we're seeing the end of this. We probably won't see the end of this for another three to six months. And I, by the way, I don't see any negotiations starting at all in this. This is just going to be a continuing fight. General Kellogg, last question. It's about China and Taiwan. I was a vocal supporter of Speaker Pelosi going to Taiwan despite mm-hmm. some of the pressure reportedly from the White House, not to do it. Of course, the CCP was all up in arms, saber-rattling. There was going to be a response, no question about that, and that response has taken the form of pretty dramatic war games and exercises all around the island of Taiwan, around that democracy, that nation. And what can you tell us from a military perspective about what the Chinese have been doing here, strategically the locations that they've done these exercises? What are they accomplishing here and what are they signaling to the world and to the Taiwanese? Yeah, I think they're signaling two things. One is that they have an ability potentially to blockade Taiwan because when you look at the target zones they actually hit with their missiles and the use of their air and their their uh, sea forces, it showed that they completely encircled Taiwan. Yeah. So I, in the back of my mind, I said, okay, but a blockade's a war. They may not have a total blockade, but to do something. Here's my biggest concern, Guy. I think that President Xi has realized that the only way he's going to solve Taiwan is the use of military force. And I think he's he's got a window. He believes he does. And the window is the next two years because he does not have an understanding or uh, a knowledge of what's going to happen 
and I think Biden's going to be a one-term president. What's going to happen when whoever replaces Biden? So he's got this opportunity, he believes, to do it if he has to uh, go in militarily. And that's the only way he's going to be able to bring Taiwan under his control. It's not a reunification because, candidly, Taiwan's really never been part of Russia, uh, of China, uh, but going back to the 1870s. It actually belonged to Japan until the end of 1945 in World War II. But I think that's what she's trying to do. Uh, he's trying to intimidate. I don't think intimidation is going to work. But if he uses military force, he greatly outnumbers what the Taiwan military forces have. Uh, and and he's, he's banking on that the Pacific region not coming to Taiwan's aid, nor the United States, in, in the next two years. So I think this is a prelude. Especially, he's trying to see how far he can go. Uh, by the way, we did the same thing in Panama before the Panama invasion. We did a lot of exercises to see what the response was going to be from the Panamanian forces. It's sort of like continued probe, 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 and then one of these days you really just go hard. And and I think within the next two years that possibility is there. Uh, this is a very dangerous area right now. I think escalation is right over the horizon, and we should be prepared for it, and we should think about what our reactions are going to be. What can Taiwan do? What can the Taiwanese do? They're totally outnumbered, right? They've got uh, their forces. They've got their defenses. I know they're preparing their civilian population with drills and that sort of thing. What do you do when there's this you know, huge 800-pound gorilla, or I guess in this case dragon, threatening you and menacing the way that they are? Yeah. Well, you'd better hope the, that Western powers or powers that are in that region, the Eastern powers too, like Japan, somebody's going to come to their aid if, it, if, it, if you know, trouble arises. Look, I'll just give you just a, a simple example. When you look at just numbers on, on aircraft alone, they've, they're flying – the Taiwan Air Force is flying the F-16s. When you look at China, they're flying both fourth-generation and fifth-generation aircraft. What does that mean? Fifth-generation means stealth. That's what we've got. They've got stealth aircraft. They've got over 2,000 combat aircraft. They can just overwhelm Taiwan by sheer numbers if somebody doesn't come to the aid of Taiwan. And so there has to be some way for us, the United States, and people like Japan and Vietnam and Australia to respond to that happening uh, in the Pacific. And if we don't, it's just going to be a matter of time. And China's just testing our resolve right now and seeing what, what are they going to respond to? How are they going to do it? In 2019, we sent three carrier battle groups into the region. Now, the danger on that is they've got actually anti-ship missiles, China does, that can reach out 1,800 miles. So it's going to be, you know, it's going to be quite dicey and there's going to be risk involved. But if we don't react to it in a very forceful way, I think we're looking at escalation, and I think China's clearly has Taiwan in their crosshairs, and it's going to just be a matter of time. So I think this is an issue that is going to resolve itself in the next two years, according to looking at the Chinese, what they're going to be trying to do, and we'd better be ready for it. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg retired a Fox News contributor, former National Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, and a former Chief of Staff of the National Security Council under President Trump. His book is War by Other Means. General, thank you so much. Thanks, Guy, and thanks for having me. You bet. We'll take a quick break. We'll come right back on The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you all along. I actually meant to mention this with the general in the last segment. We just sort of ran out of time with General Kellogg, so let's just bring this to you here. An update on a story that we have talked about before. This from the Washington Examiner. A member of the Iranian government's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the longtime 
and murderous leader of which we took out under President Trump, General Soleimani, a member of that group, was charged with murder for hire. It was a plot to assassinate former Trump National Security Advisor John Bolton. The Justice Department unsealed charges on Wednesday, yesterday, accusing Sharam Pursafi of attempting to murder Bolton, likely in retaliation for the United States' successful strike, killing Quds Force leader General Qasem Soleimani in January of 2020. Pursafi was charged for the, quote, use of interstate commerce facilities in the commission of a murder-for-hire plot and with providing and attempting to provide material support to a transnational murder plot. The Justice Department said that he attempted to pay U.S.-based individuals $300,000 to carry out the murder in either Washington, D.C. or Maryland. Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson said this, quote, the Justice Department has the solemn duty to defend our citizens from hostile governments who seek to hurt or kill them. Quote, this is not the first time we have uncovered Iranian plots to exact revenge against individuals on U.S. soil, and we will work tirelessly to expose and disrupt every one of those efforts. We also know that the Iranians have been trying to kill former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo as well. And this just, I think, brings again into stark relief the evil nature of this regime, their fixation with assassinating high-ranking U.S. officials or former high-ranking U.S. officials, they're still very upset that President Trump and the administration greenlit that successful attack against Soleimani, who was in Iraq. He has so much American blood, or I should say he had so much American blood on his hands, especially in Iraq. And we took him out. And it was absolutely the right call to do it. There were criticisms of that at the time. And I thought those criticisms were wrong. It was a bold action. It was a correct action. The world is safer with Soleimani off the battlefield. But I'm glad that we still have U.S. officials being vigilant against these threats. And just because they've disrupted some of them doesn't mean that they will disrupt future ones. Unless they're very careful and stay on it, which I hope they will. Now, the individual who's been charged is still abroad. So this person is not in U.S. custody but it's basically like an open warrant for this individual who is trying to arrange this murder for hire. And by the way, just one political point, the Biden administration knew about this stuff, knew about the threats, knew about the murder plots, all while they were sitting down and negotiating indirectly through the Russians, remember that, with the Iranian regime on the nuclear deal. They were so desperate for a flawed, failed nuclear deal that they were negotiating with a regime that was actively trying to kill former U.S. officials at the time. That's pretty remarkable. And it, I think, really underscores why such negotiations are a dead end. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up. Will Kane will be joining us right after this on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It's time for the happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Thank you very much for being with us. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, then around the clock on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, our website. That's GuyBensonShow.com. You can also go to FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts for the podcast side, of course. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. Catch me tonight on Special Report. I'll be on the panel with Brett Baer at the end of the 6 p.m. hour on Fox News Channel. This hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, very refreshing. We recommend it, and so many of you are trying it. They are spreading like wildfire across the country, now in 40-plus states. TheLongDrink.com is the website to check out where they're sold near you. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. With us now is Will Kane. Our colleague here at Fox News, a co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, which is 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, Saturday and Sunday. Also, he's got the popular Will Kane podcast at foxnewspodcast.com. And, Will, you are joining us, if I'm not mistaken, from Iowa. Is that right? Some think heaven, but yes, Guy, it is Iowa. Excellent. We did this a year ago for the first Major League Baseball Field of Dreams game between the Yankees and the White Sox. My Yankees ended up on the wrong end of a thriller, a 9-8 win for Chicago in that game. And here's round two, the Cubs and the Reds tonight with the throwback uniforms, 7 p.m. Eastern time on Big Fox. I'll probably tune in for some of it. Based on your experience last year, just on the ground and the excitement and the buzz surrounding this game, what did you think of the actual experience last year and the product that came on the air? There were a few thousand fans there, of course, in person as well. And how stoked are you as a sports fan for this version with the Cubs and the Reds tonight? So last year's event could not have gone more perfectly for Major League Baseball or for the sports fan. It was on television, picturesque. It captured the environment, and it delivered an amazing baseball game that, as you pointed out, ended in thrilling fashion. You know, it's interesting, Guy. This is out in the middle of nowhere. Dyersville, Iowa is a town of about 4,500 people, and it is a good 30 minutes from Dubuque, an hour from Cedar Rapids, and this complex that was the movie set of Field of Dreams and is now a temporary baseball stadium housing Major League Baseball once every summer is literally out in the middle of a field, Mm -hmm. and it makes coming here effort. It makes it hard. This morning I was sitting there talking to John Smoltz, Hall of Famer, Cy Young Award winner, World Series winner, and he said, you know, you see this game on the schedule and you think, man, we got to go all the way out there, and then the minute you arrive, you're so happy that you did. You're so happy that you're here. I don't know. I get to do a lot of cool things with Fox and Friends, Guy. I've been to multiple NASCAR venues. I've been to the Super Bowl. I've been to the World Series. I've been to a lot of events when I was with ESPN. This one lives up to the hype. There's just something about the movie and nostalgia and baseball and this scenery that all comes together and just – it just feels good. Yeah, and I mean it looked amazing last year. The visuals were stunning. The outcome was frustrating for me, although some of that frustration has been revisited these last few weeks for the Yankees as a Yankee fan. But setting aside the rooting interest, which, of course, I had in that game, it was hard to argue with how it looked, how it felt. I know it was a big hit with the fans. The ratings were good, and we'll see if it holds up again with 
this very popular franchise in the Cubs. The Reds have been struggling a little bit, but there's still some novelty to this. And we'll be watching tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern. That's on Fox, Big Fox, the network. Will, I want to talk to you a bit. Last time we chatted on the air, we mentioned Texas politics. I'm sure you've been following this. The back and forth between an indirect through the media, but the back and forth between the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, who's very upset that Greg Abbott has been busing just a small number of illegal immigrants from Texas up to New York City. We've gotten a similar reaction from the D.C. mayor, Muriel Bowser. They are both very proud leaders of sanctuary cities. They are effectively in favor of the border crisis and all of the terrible policies that have created this border crisis. And with states like Texas and Arizona sending just just a fraction of the problem up to these northeastern blue cities, just conniption fits from those mayors have been the result. And Adams is now threatening to go down to Texas to campaign against Governor Abbott. And Governor Abbott said, you know, please come do that. We would love for that to happen. (laughs) In fact, he said, you know, to quote Clint Eastwood, make my day. Go ahead, Mayor. Make my day was the quote. Now, Adams firing back. Listen to cut eight. Well, uh, first of all, um, I know he thinks he's uh, Clint Eastwood, but he's not. He is a anti-American governor that is really going against everything we stand for. And uh, I am going to do everything feasible to make sure Texan uh, people of Texas realize how harmful he is to us globally. Uh, He's a global embarrassment uh, because this is not what we do as Americans. Well, what the hell is he talking about? An anti-American governor who's a global embarrassment just because he sent a handful of illegal immigrants to New York City? I mean, it really feels like Adams is going nuclear with the rhetoric here without really much basis behind any of it. No, I would love to know or hear, was there a follow-up question? Please explain to me how he is anti-American. Please explain to me how he's a global threat. Please explain to me how he stands against our values. I would love to hear Adams explain the answer to those questions. You know, I don't know what the exact right analogy is, Guy, but it's so it's so pretentious. You know, it's almost as though you know, someone – you know, when Europeans came to the United States of America and colonized this great land, one of the byproducts was that Native Americans and American Indians died from diseases they had not previously been exposed. They died from smallpox. It's almost as though in this analogy that Adams and his policies are the ones spreading smallpox, and then he looks at the Indians, and he looks at the Native Americans, and he looks at the Texans, and he says, how dare you get your smallpox back on me? You know, He sounds like he's standing there next to a dying patient whose illness he helped create and is upset that perhaps that dying patient might have accidentally coughed onto his lab coat. It is incredibly pretentious, incredibly condescending. You can almost visualize the nose he is looking down as he tells Texas, don't get your illegal immigrants on me. This is a Texas problem. Keep it in Texas. I want not even a droplet. I want not even a few, what, dozen illegal immigrants, thousands over a couple of months, a couple of thousand over a couple of months. Keep your hundreds of thousands, your millions of illegal immigrants down in Texas. Yep. And he said that. He said they should figure out the housing for them down there. Don't send them here. I mean, it's, it's a really 
arrogant, incoherent thing that he is saying, especially as someone who's been, you know, all excited about leading a sanctuary city. Obviously, he's fine with the theoretical idea and notion of being a sanctuary city, but not terribly excited about what that looks like in reality, in practice, when you've got this massive surge and flood of illegal immigrants, millions who have come to the country during the Biden administration. We are on track to get soon to a million known gotaways. These aren't even the people who've been apprehended at the border. That's a million known gotaways, and we are pretty close to that number already under President Biden alone. And here's Eric Adams, you know, obviously doing sort of the tough guy, tough talk thing here, saying, you know, this guy's anti-American. He's a global embarrassment. I don't know how many people abroad, with all due respect to Governor Abbott, have ever heard of Governor Abbott. (laughs) The idea that he's a huge global embarrassment to the United States is absurd. That's not rooted in anything. And I just feel like you're the Texan here. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, I very much believe that the mayor of New York City coming to Texas, as he's threatening to do, to go around lecturing Texans about how <laughs> awful the governor of Texas is and how they need to vote more like they do up in New York City. Just don't send us the results of the crisis. But right. come on in. You know, go for Beto. We don't want Greg Abbott. I feel like that is a massive in-kind contribution to the Abbott for Governor campaign. Yes, absolutely. That would be the best thing that could happen for Greg Abbott. That's why he's saying make my day. And even the comebacks from Adams are sort of like slow-witted. Maybe he's just (laughs) not that smart of a guy. I don't know. And I like some of the stuff he is saying in New York City. But he is way out of his depth on this one, and it shows. Will Kane, I want to get your reaction on something else. I tweeted earlier today, and it seems to have sort of taken off on social media. I was just sitting there last night thinking about the new talking point from the White House that we had 0% inflation in July, when the real number is 8.5%. And they're trying to spin it as like this big victory lap thing. And I just went off the top of my head and thought of a number of similar examples of just brazen talking points from this crew. So one that came to mind was when they said build back better would cost zero dollars. You might remember that one. That was an insane thing that they said, but they said it repeatedly. They say that the border is secure. Anytime you ask them, yes, the border is closed, the border is secure. They had a talking point for a while where they tried to pretend that Republicans were actually the party in favor of defunding the police. They actually tried that Mm -hmm. one. They said that back-to-back quarters of economic contraction is not a recession anymore, not under them. They've got this Inflation Reduction Act that is not an Inflation Reduction Act. Even Bernie Sanders doesn't believe it, but that's what they're calling it. We have the White House Chief of Staff saying that with real wages down 3% in July, wages are up. A few more examples that spring to mind are all of the distortions about the IRS and how this massive doubling of the IRS won't affect anyone under $400,000. Don't you worry. It's, it's not something that's going to come for you. And then, of course, the president about a year ago saying that the bloody chaos in Afghanistan was an extraordinary success. Those are just, you know, roughly, what, eight, nine, ten examples off the top of my head where the gaslighting that they've attempted against the American people is absolutely shameless and brazen. And I remember all of the fact checkers basically never took a vacation during the Trump administration. They were out there cranking out fact checks every single day, big headlines and chirons all over cable news on our competitors about all the lies that were being told. These are some big, big lies. 
and big distortions on things that the American people can see and experience. I just wonder what you think of that, because I just at a certain point, it really starts to bother me how insulting this stuff is and how stupid, obviously, they think we are collectively. Yeah, the, the takeaway is they're not even good lies. And you use the right word. They're brazen. How can you be someone? You know, you and I probably know in our personal lives someone who is a liar. And we know people who are almost all of them good liars. A bad liar is a joke. A bad liar isn't even that common because a bad liar, I don't know what happens to bad liars. I think you see them when they're like nine years old, but they either get good or start telling the truth or just float away. These are some of the worst liars at the highest levels of society. And I guess you can be that brazen when, as you point out, there's no one there to call out the lie. But there's never an adult that goes, now listen, I and you both know that's not true. You don't have that quote-unquote fact checker or that that mechanism to keep the lie from standing as true. It's, well, it's like, it's like it's, the kid – you can imagine it like you know, a little kid who's five or six years old, and he's got chocolate smeared all over his mouth and face. It's like, now, Billy, yeah. did you eat that yeah. chocolate? He's like, no, and you know that's a lie, and it's not convincing anyone, and everyone involved uh, is aware that it's a lie. That's how it feels a lot of the time with this yeah. crew. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. It's insulting because the assumption is that you won't see that it's a lie. Yeah, and we do over and over again, and I think part of the reason that we have the role that we have uh, in the media and at our network is because so many other people are willing to play along with this stuff or indulge it. And I'm all for an adversarial press, but it seems like it's hyper-adversarial when one party's in charge and the very opposite with a lot of these journalists when their team is in charge. I mean, it really comes down to something that simple. And I, I hate to sound that cynical about it, but I think it happens to be true, which is why I said it. Yeah, can, I, can I just end this conversation while we started with one note? You know, you asked me at the top about my experience here at the Field of Dreams. Here in Iowa, I just want to share you with you as I enter my second year what what makes it different or what might resonate, and it's twofold. I don't know if you saw the tweets from Joey Votto, the Cincinnati Red Star, but he said he rewatched Field of Dreams and he grew up watching Field of Dreams from the age of eight or nine uh, with his father, and he said his, his father died 14 years ago, and so it's impossible for him not to feel an emotional connection to the movie, the moment, and this place when Ray asks his father for a catch, just one more moment together. That's what this movie is about for so many. It's the story of a father and a son. And this morning, Guy, really to my surprise, for the Will Kane podcast, I sat down, as I mentioned, with John Smoltz. And I asked him about that idea, that theme, and the first thing he told me, Guy, was that his father passed away this morning. I was floored. I Whoa. was honored that he would be standing there, sitting there, talking with me. But he was such – an incredible voice on the meaning of this place in this moment and the relationship that it all represents between a father and a son. Wow, uh, that is a shocking thing, I would imagine, to hear in an interview like that. And we'll have to catch that edition of the Will Kane podcast. We'll also be watching the game tonight, 7 p.m. Eastern, on Fox. Cubs, Reds, in the cornfields of Iowa. It should be pretty cool. Will Kane, co-host of Fox and Friends Weekend, 6 to 10 Eastern, Saturday and Sunday, and the aforementioned Will Kane podcast, foxnewspodcast.com. Will, always appreciate it. Talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues after this. A fresh take on the biggest stories of the day. It's Guy Benson.
back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for being here. We are just talking about the Biden administration and some of the gaslighting with Will Kane. We also told you yesterday, and read from a Wall Street Journal story, about how President Biden has spent a lot of time away from the White House, especially in Delaware and at the beach. He was just at the beach last weekend, and he has now left for South Carolina for another vacation at a secluded island, which sounds very nice. And I'm not one to begrudge a president some R&R and some time off. We all need that sort of thing. Presidents have exceptionally stressful jobs. And so that's fine. I have called into question some of the optics over the last year and a half of President Biden's vacations or leaving for a beach weekend in the middle of all sorts of hell breaking loose with various crises. It's fine for him to go on vacation. Going from beach to beach sounds delightful. Now, the cynical part of me was joking on social media because some conservatives are criticizing him like, hey, everything's great. Go on vacation. You've earned it. And I was sort of playing into that a little bit because it's like they're at least feigning outrage that he's going on vacation. And my response is give the guy a break. He's on such a winning streak. He's on a roll. The media keeps telling us it's the big Biden comeback. I mean, he got, what, inflation down to 0% single-handedly. It's a huge achievement. Let the man enjoy the beach in South Carolina. (laughs) I hope he has a happy and healthy vacation. I also hope he remembers that the American people are still in a world of hurt from problems that he and his administration are trying to pretend don't really exist. I don't know who they think they're fooling because the American people are feeling their reality every day. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour after this. We are back on The Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. Earlier today, we caught up with Kim Strassel, Wall Street Journal columnist, Fox News contributor, reacting to all the latest news about Mar-a-Lago, the statement earlier from the Attorney General. Here's part of my conversation with Kimberly Strassel. All right, so uh, we've heard now from the AG. We heard nothing at all. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it was untenable. Finally, we get something today. Not really a ton of news there, but what do you think of it? Yeah, not a ton. First of all, one thing that was important um, is that he did say that he had authorized this search warrant. That does put to rest some media claims out there claiming that he didn't know about this, which was shocking idea to me. So he at least did that. Um, on the, the warrant and the unsealing, in my mind, Guy, that does maybe help confirm a little bit uh, the, the reigning media narrative out there that this is about documents, uh, given that he talked not just about the search warrant, but also about a property for receipt, uh, which suggests these were things that were being taken away and seized, obviously, from Mar-a-Lago, um, which raises to me some really important questions on a much bigger level, which is, you know, I, I understand the point about the law is the law, but the Department of Justice has longstanding guidelines about not going into politically sensitive areas without really good reason. And you got to wonder if going after documents counts. I mean, I think that's very much a fair question. But again, here we are left, Kimberly, talking about stuff that is still kind of hidden from public view. We might get some of it if this warrant comes out. Uh, maybe sometime soon, maybe in the next couple days. But 
to me, it's sort of the purpose of the warrant. Why was the warrant sought in the first place based on what? That will remain out of public view for a significant period of time, it sounds like, based on what we heard there from the attorney general. And look, when this news broke that the Mar-a-Lago raid had happened, uh, I was trying to make heads or tails of it. What does it actually mean? What was the purpose of it? It seemed to coincide with a lot of increasing chatter around the January 6th investigation. And you know, our mutual friend, a very smart guy who comes on the show all the time, Andy McCarthy, longtime federal prosecutor, he said, and so did former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, I had both of them on this show on Monday, they both seem to believe that this search must have been related somehow to January 6th and not just some dispute over presidential records and documents and classified material because at least I don't want to speak for either of them, but implicit in that message was this can't really just be about that, can it? And based on their time as federal prosecutors, Chris Christie was a U.S. attorney, it seems like at least the message I gleaned, speaking just for myself, from their point, their points, was This would have to be a smaller piece of a larger puzzle, and that may or may not be the case, Kim, because, you know, it's it's entirely plausible or possible that Justice Department is trying to build some much larger case on much more serious matters, not to say that classified material and mishandling is is not a serious matter, matter, but in the scheme of things, we have seen prosecutorial discretion, for example, with Hillary Clinton not charging her with, I think, clear-cut crimes on this front. If this comes down to Trump, a former president, taking material out of the White House and stowing it away at Mar-a-Lago, if that's what this ultimately comes down to, and it's just sort of within that realm, within that silo of presidential records and and classified material, uh, to me, that would be a major factor in you know all of us out here in the media determining whether this was overreach. Because if there's something much bigger at play, then I'm open to saying perhaps they had no choice and this was justified. I don't know. But if it's just materials taken from the White House down to Mar-a-Lago, that would at least to me seem a lot more in the sort of gray realm of dodginess about whether such heavy-handed tactics were remotely justified against a former president. Right, and especially in an election year. I think it would actually just be wild, Guy. I mean, the the notion, again, these guidelines that are there, and uh, we heard from Eric Garland, you're hearing a lot in the press, no one's above the law, uh, equal justice under the law. I get all that, except for the guidelines are there to – it's an implicit recognition that you can't take politics out of any kind of political investigation. And so it requires a sort of weighing, like how big of a crime does it have to be to risk undermining the Department of Justice's reputation and positioning it as some sort of a politicized or corrupt entity. In the case of a former president, that bar needs to be very high. It has yes. always been very high. In the entire history of the attorney general's office, which is more than 230 years old. Um, so, yes, if this is about document retrieval, uh, that, that's crazy that he would take that risk. Now, of course, Andy McCarthy and others that you have suggested have claimed that what we might find in this warrant is a, a stated purpose of some sort of document retrieval when, in fact, it's a fishing expedition 
for material that might get them something that they want in their January 6th probe, et cetera. Um, And, you know, even the opening of that uh, warrant might not tell us that either, um, unless it explicitly says that it's related to January 6th. Um, we, We won't necessarily know. It could just claim documents. And we don't know what kind of documents they were actually looking for. Right. And so that's why, and I sort of made this observation uh, earlier in the show, and I might repeat it because you and I are together on the special report panel this evening. So a little preview of that panel here in just longer form on the radio. It is really (laughs) hard, I think, and you can agree or disagree, it's really hard for me, at least, to offer sound analysis of this situation because – There's just so much that we don't know. And to try to extrapolate how this will play months from now, let alone a few years from now in elections, I think it really depends on what do they actually have on this guy, if anything. If it's just documents, that is a very different story than if it's something much bigger. And we're just sort of staring into a black box here. We have no idea what is actually really happening. So it's it's hard to kind of draw any strong conclusions and – Kim, that might not even change that dramatically, what I just said, even when we see this warrant. Yeah, I think the way to look at what Garland announced today is the minimal possible public uh, explanation of what happened here. Okay, so they're going to put out that warrant. All right, fine. Maybe it'll tell us something. But if there's a lot of things that we're still probably not going to get even with that warrant guy, meaning, for instance, what was the pretext of this raid? If you listen to people, lawyers on Trump's team, uh, they claim there was a subpoena. Uh, the Department of Justice was invited into Mar-a-Lago. Kane was allowed to look around, uh, you know, had information about what they wanted to do. With and they took some stuff, lock, right? And took some stuff. And then, according to Trump team, it was radio silence right up until this particular raid. Um, what we really need to know is, is that the real case of the thing? So you'd need the Department of Justice to put forward its uh, uh, information about what happened in the intervening time. It's highly unlikely they're going to do that. And while I do understand Department of Justice protocol where they don't discuss ongoing investigations, this is a really big deal. Um, uh, and And I think one of the problems is that it it isn't an election year. It hangs a lot of innuendo, by the way, not just over Trump, but the Republican Party and those who are supporting him in this particular thing. And, and that is a, a big monkey wrench thrown into politics in the ex- upcoming midterms. Well, and it's also not happening, and this is the next direction I want to take this, Kim. It's also not happening in a vacuum, right? It's not like we have had no weirdness surrounding Trump and the Justice Department and the FBI for the last six years, and then out of nowhere this thing dropped out of the sky, out of nowhere. Part of the reason that I think the reaction has been as volcanic as it has been in a lot of quarters on the right is because of all of the context building up to this moment, building up to this week, including the whole Russia thing that you and I have talked about many times. So I just wanted to get your reaction when we were coming back from the break in this segment I played some of the Garland statement, and he you know, went to bat for his people at DOJ and FBI saying, you know, I, I won't stand here and just allow people to impugn their, you know, their integrity and what have you. And, and I said, look, I'm not interested in impugning the entire FBI and the DOJ and saying that they're all you know, scumbags and they should be defunded and you know, disbanded. That, I'm, not, I'm not going there. But there are, I think, completely fair questions 
to ask about politicized investigations with those entities involving this man, Donald Trump, based not on just, you know, knee-jerk partisanship, based on what they have done in recent years that we've covered, and you have perhaps more than anyone covered. Your reaction to that from what we heard uh, out of the attorney general? Yeah, my jaw dropped. That was actually, to me, one of the more offensive parts of that statement, just because, I mean, what, has everyone just put the past five years down the memory hole? And when you talk about what they have done, by the way, let's note that these are things that have been exposed by a special counsel in John Durham, by the inspector general uh, for the FBI and the Department of Justice, Michael Horowitz, report after report. I mean, when you are going to go to the bat for the integrity of the FBI, Jim Comey's FBI, really? My full interview with Kim Strassel, Wall Street Journal columnist, Fox News contributor, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com. Also on the podcast, which is the entire show, free of charge, every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, maybe you can tell from my voice, but to use a sports term, I've been playing hurt just a little bit yesterday and today. Some details on that right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com for our free podcast each and every day. Catch me tonight on Special Report, back-to-back appearances for yours truly. I'll be on the panel with Brett Bayer and company toward the end of the 6 p.m. hour. Just about an hour from now on Fox News Channel. In the meantime, I alluded to this right before the break, a year ago... You might recall, devotees of the program might remember, that in early August 2021, I revealed on this show, on the air, that I had a COVID breakthrough case, which at the time was still relatively rare. There was some novelty to it. I had gotten my second shot, so I had become fully vaccinated in May, and then a few weeks later, I guess a few months later, I wasn't feeling terrible at all. I was feeling a little bit off, and I took a test because I was supposed to go into an event with a lot of people, and I said, I'd rather be safe than sorry, so I took the test. Lo and behold, a positive test, and I had COVID, and I was in Texas, and I quarantined in a hotel room for days, and I did the show from the hotel room, and I was a little froggy for a couple days. And I had not gotten COVID since. That was a year ago, almost to the day. Well, funny thing, I started to feel a little bit weird, maybe just a little tiny bit off Tuesday night. Yesterday, I really didn't feel great. I was supposed to go into the Fox News Bureau, do the show from the Tony Snow studio, do some TV in person. I just felt off enough that I said, you know what, I'm going to do all of it from home. Did the show from home, did some TV from home. And I said, if I don't feel better by tomorrow, i.e. today, I would take a COVID test. Because I was supposed to go to New York. I have a lot of TV coming up. I was supposed to be co-hosting the big show over the weekend, outnumbered on Monday. I had a push up to New York. I was going to be seeing a lot of people. And I said, let's just wait, see how I feel. And when I woke up today, I didn't have a great night at all last night. It was unpleasant. Not terrible, not unbearable. I don't feel super sick. Obviously, I'm on the air. I'll be on special report tonight. I was on special report last night, but there's been some fatigue. I've had some sort of nagging 
coughing, a little bit of post-nasal drip. There were some chills last night as well. I woke up today feeling, I would say, a tiny bit better, but still not great. And I said, even though this doesn't feel like COVID felt last time, a year ago, the symptoms aren't exactly the same. Just the way my body is reacting is not exactly the same. But apparently that's how it works sometimes for a lot of people. It's not a familiar pattern. It's sometimes different symptoms. Or it just you know affects you a bit differently from time to time. So this morning, I got up. I slept for 12 hours straight. Straight through 12 hours, which is never a sign that you're <laughs> doing well. And I went downstairs. We had a COVID test. I took it. And it was... Not subtle. It was like, boom, that line turned pink immediately and then deep red. So we've got COVID again, folks, here in the Benson house. We had it over the holidays. My dad, my brother, my husband, they all had it. I didn't get it, but the COVID bug has gotten me again almost a year to the day after my first breakthrough case. And I'm feeling well enough to be here with all of you. I didn't feel like I couldn't do the show or couldn't be on TV tonight. It's still not great. I'm not feeling fantastic. I'm bummed that the New York trip is going away. And some people ask me, because I posted on social media that I had COVID again, they're like, why would you even bother testing? And I'm not one of these, let's just test everyone willy-nilly, especially people who are asymptomatic. I was symptomatic, and I had a trip coming up where I would interface with a bunch of people. So I thought that was the smart thing to do, the responsible thing to do. I'm glad I tested. I won't be going to New York. I've got an overseas trip coming up a while from now. And frankly, I'm just sort of relieved to hopefully get this out of the way before that. But we're just fighting through COVID here. And so if my voice sounded a little bit off, we've been uh, turning off the microphone for some coughing here or there throughout the show. We do appreciate all of you bearing with us. And unless I take a turn for the worse, I expect to be here also tomorrow from home doing the isolation thing for whatever it is, the five days. And I'll be under great care, at least remotely, from our friend Dr. Sapphire, who's always great, sending me texts and advice and all of that. And Christine, I wasn't sure it was COVID. In fact, I predicted, I said, I don't think this is COVID. It feels different. I'm going to take the test anyway, just in case. And... The results were not subtle. It's super COVID again. You know what, Guy? I, I Something told me yesterday that it might be COVID, but this is the world we live in. And, you know, you're able to still do the show. Yeah. You're able to function. This is how this is how it works. Not everybody's going to shut down and, you know, stay home just because you have it. So I think this is just the way it's going to happen. I'm glad you're okay. But... I do want to let you know, maybe tell Adam, uh, my train does get in around 930 tonight. (laughs) So Uh I will be there by 10. I will take care of you. I will make sure I will make some sort of homemade chicken soup. Um, I'll bring my own stash of mama's juice. Everything's going to be okay. Cookies. I wear a hazmat suit. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Full bubble. Uh Yeah. What that is such a relief. You know, I think I just like, take my chances with COVID. I appreciate the thought. It's very kind of you, though. But look, we just wanted to put that out there. You know, I I said it on social media. I always want to be open with this audience so you know where I'm coming from and what's happening here. And often we've got cool and interesting stuff to report. Sometimes it's less cool and less fun, including this, the fact that I have COVID. And by the way, I think there's a decent chance that I got this at the Lady Gaga concert. In fact, 
one of the other people, one of our girlfriends who was at the concert, she is down with COVID right now. So she saw my social media post. She's like, oh, man, same. I think we got it at Lady Gaga. And my cousin, who was also there, who got us the tickets, he just texted me this. Ra, ra, ro, na, na, got sick at Gaga. And I think that's pretty good. And that's the best singing I can possibly do while I have COVID. So you're welcome, and I'm sorry. Back here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show, same time, same place. See you on Special Report tonight. Have a great evening, and thank you for listening. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.